Welcome to the Bridge in Theology podcast, which connects Christian scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Candace Y. Smith, a practical theologian and one member of the hosting team, along with Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia H. Herrera Montero, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Trimper Longman III. Trimper is a distinguished scholar and professor emeritus of biblical studies at Westmont College. He is a specialist in the Old Testament and has written numerous articles and more than 20 books. One of his latest books is Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Pressing Questions About Evolution, Sexuality, History, and Violence, published by Baker in 2019. Our hosts today are Dr. Beth Stovell, who specializes in Old Testament and Biblical Studies, and Dr. Ryan Reed, who specializes in John Calvin and Historical Theology. We include a host from outside our guest specialization to help promote conversations that build bridges and provide different perspectives. Since this is a new podcast, we would be grateful if you would share the show with others through social media or in person. And now on with the conversation. Candice, and thank you all for listening. I'm Beth Stabell. And I'm Ryan Reed. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Tremper Longman III. Tremper, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Beth. Great to be here with Great. you. Yeah, it's re- we're really um, glad to have you. So let's just jump right into things. Um, we wondered, uh, Tremper, if you could share with us just something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Well, uh, I maybe most people don't know that I was a uh, third string all state center on a on a high school football team 50 years ago that won the state championship and was was third in the nation. Wow, no. And uh, and they might not know that my friend and sometime co-author uh the psychologist Dan Allender was honorable mention all-American defensive lineman on that team. Wow. But yeah. uh and that's why I'm an avid football fan, a Philadelphia Eagles fan. But uh, Dan, for some reason, he's only a football fan when the Seattle Seahawks, where he lives, beat my Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I didn't realize that uh, your that collaboration went all the way back to high school, or nor that you played football. Yeah, well, back to eighth grade. Yeah, so before either of us were Christians. So that <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's great. Well, I I, I think probably many listeners learned something there. So, and I've also heard you have a number of interesting names for your uh, pets, Tremper. Uh, could you tell us about those? Uh, uh, sure. So uh, the way my wife got me to agree to have a dog <laughs> uh, after our first dog, which was kind of a disaster, uh, was uh, she said, you can name the dog. And I said, well, if I name the dog, I'm going to name the dog Tiglath Pileser Third." She said, fine, we'll call him Tiggy. Okay, nice. Tiglath Pileser Third, of course, the 8th century new Assyrian king. And then uh, after Tiggy um, uh, died, uh, we got a second dog. And uh, it was a girl dog, uh, golden retrievers, both of them. And I named that dog Adad Gupi after the queen mother uh, of um, Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon. And I had actually translated the autobiography of Adad Gupi as part of my dissertation back in 1983. So we called her Addie. Wow, that's cool. And she was a delightful dog. That's, I, that's, that's those have got to be the longest dog names probably uh, <laughs> ever, I, 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 I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and my mentor and friend, Ray Dillard, uh, who with whom I wrote an Old Testament introduction before he died at a too young age, um, he got me going on this because he noticed that people named their dogs after Roman emperors like Caesar or Brutus or Rufus or something and named their children after disciples. So I said, well, 
uh, I'm gonna, the Old Testament equivalent is Assyrian and Babylonian <laughs> royal names. I didn't realize there was a system to this. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you call your dogs by their full names when you're angry at them? I suppose or something yes. like that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, like like they're like Absolutely. their children or something. That's great. So. <laughs> right, that's right. great. Well, yeah, yeah. That's I, I learned something new there as well. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's wonderful, Trimper. Um, you know, you've de- dedicated a lot of your career, your writing, your research, your teaching on the Bible, its ancient context, how the Bible addresses contemporary issues, the ways the Bible can be read meaningfully, carefully by the average person. And something I love about your work is that you do this great job of bridging the academy and the church. And I think many of us um, at different stages have really wrestled with how we see our vocation. And I'd love to hear more of your story of how you found this particular path. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, I became a Christian uh, senior year of high school. My best friend, Dan Allender, a couple of years later, that's a whole other interesting story for another time. But, um, but when I became a Christian, it was like 1970. Um, uh, it's during the Jesus Revolution, and we were—I was a freshman in college, and we got a lot of pushback from our professors, even our religious studies professors, and and that really encouraged me to be inquisitive about the faith in general. So that I think is one of the things that kind of moved me in the direction of becoming an academic. Plus, by the way, meeting my future wife Alice, who had just come back from Labrie. Uh, where Francis Schaefer and Oz Guinness were. And um, and so she had become a Christian through a bunch of Westminster Theological Seminary students, including a guy that uh, you all probably know, Andrew Lincoln, who wrote mm. the Ephesians mm. commentary. Yeah. So Andrew and his uh, wife, Paula, were very influential in Alice becoming a Christian and telling her to go to all that to say that Alice was a real inspiration to me too, to get serious about thinking through the faith. And then I went off to seminary with the hope that I'd be able to cut it as an academic. And then I uh, came to um, study under this guy, Ray Dillard, who was at that time, I thought he was old and wise. He was probably 31 and I was 21. But uh <laughs> But Ray had a tremendous influence on me and encouraged me to go on an Old Testament and then sent me off to Yale where, and then hired me where I taught the first 20 years of my career, or 18 technically. Uh, and then just one more bit of this journey I'll throw in here. Um, I wanted to write and I started to write. And um, and then I, I thought um, that I wanted to write for three different audiences. I wanted to write for scholarly audience um, in order to establish, you know, uh, uh, you know, get to kind of uh, represent um, evangelicalism in that broader scholarly context. But also I wanted to write for pastors and seminarians. That's kind of what I call the professional <laughs> track. And then, for lay people, because I, I think it's really important for scholars to do their best to communicate with lay people um, rather than sort of uh, turning the back on on that audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not but it's not easy, of course, to do that. But I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> and the one thing I found out is it, you work a lot longer to write something for a scholarly audience and very few people read it. And then, <laughs> so, so there are rewards on, uh, and, and rewards and challenges for writing for all three audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to say that, uh, that, that way of approaching things has, has really inspired me. It's one of the things I've been really thankful for mm-hmm. in knowing you, um, <laughs> is thinking in terms of those three audiences. So I just mm-hmm. want to Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad. And I, I really love your uh, writing and your productivity. And, and so it's been a lot of, it's been great to watch your growing reputation, Beth. Thanks, Trimper. Um, so 
I'd love to ask you a question about the Old Testament itself. So when you think about what the Old Testament is, um, how would you describe it? What kind of history do you think it is? How do you see it related to moral formation, um, Israel's identity, kind of those different pieces? Yeah, well, uh, of course, the Old Testament is a collection of books that were written before Christ. Uh, that's an obvious place to start, right? And uh, and and it's a collection of pretty diverse books. You know, um, you get historical books, um, you get law, you get wisdom, prophecy, apocalyptic, and so forth. And and you know, my own view is that. Um, these books have almost every book, if not every book, has a history of composition of some sort, okay? Mm -hmm. I think it's wrong to think that um, biblical books were the product of one person at one sitting. On the other hand, I also think it's very difficult to be very dogmatic or precise about the development of a biblical book. Plus, I also think it's ultimately not all that important <laughs> because not only, you know, do I come from a kind of Gerhardus Voss background, but, but also, you know, I didn't study much with childs at Yale, but I was still deeply influenced by canonical interpretation and, um, and, and feel that like childs did that, um, that, you know, the final form of the text is what's scripture for the church. So for instance, in Job, um, you know, it's it's perhaps likely even that Job has a history of composition and the some of the different parts of it came together over time. Maybe the Elihu section was added later, but um, but you know, what we have is is uh is the text with Elihu in there. And so our question is, how does the fact that Elihu is not introduced and that no one responds to him, how does that function within the book? Um, or even say if Genesis 1 and 2 have different origins and they're brought together, well, they're now together. Now, how are we supposed to read them together? So that's that's one answer to your historical question. And then, of course, the other question has to do with historical referentiality. Um, and and I I I do think that um, what I just called theological history, and I would put Genesis through Esther in there, are representing events that actually happened, but it, it and it's doing so in um, you know in a way to communicate theological truth. So it's. Like all history, all history is selective, emphasized, and interpreted. The question isn't, is this history ideological, or we would use the term theological. The question is, is it the right ideology that's being represented there? So so those are some answers to your good question there, Beth, but we could write a book. Matter of fact, I'm writing three books now on the Old Testament as literature, the Old Testament as history, and the Old Testament as theology. <laughs> so I guess we'll get to read your answer as well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, hopefully I'll be still alive to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, Trevor, could I jump in there? Um, one question I've just, you've talked about it, um, a best uh, first question about the three different audiences that you have. And I think sometimes um, for Christians, there's a challenge there because some Christians, when they think about what kind of book is the Old Testament, there's um, not all scholars, obviously, but some scholars would give a very different answer than like the way that the mm. scripture is read in the church and the way that it's read in some academic circles as the kind of book it is there's kind of a different um, take on, on what kind of book this, the scripture is. And how have you kind of bridged that gap as, as someone who's a scholar and someone who's also uh, writing to lay people, you know, you're in both of those worlds. So how do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, I'm probably most successful in the scholarly world when I'm working on say wisdom materials or, uh, or, um, literary theory and the Old Testament rather than tackling some of the controversial issues that 
what we might call mainstream historical critics would disagree uh, with me and others about. Um, so I, I don't know. I just, um, I, I, you know, I found that that I have critics on <laughs> on all <laughs> levels and on all sides. Yeah. So, so, but you know, I think that's to be expected mm. if you're and and I've I've always tried to I've always tried to not cater to my audience, but just represent what I think is the right perspective on mm. it. And um, and. Uh, I'll just give one anecdote, even though it was a short YouTube thing. I once was asked by somebody, it was 2008, uh, a series of questions with, and and they asked me to give two or three minute answers. And I didn't know what he was going to do with it. And actually I didn't care because I was I was a little reluctant to do it because it was during a break when I was doing a seminar and I wanted to relax, uh, but I, I did it. And so one of the questions was, you know, it, does Adam have to be a historical person in order for Genesis one through three to be true? Well, I gave, I won't go into the details of what I said, but it was a two minute response, which got me uh, relieved, shall we say, I fired actually from uh, teaching uh, an adjunct course at a seminary where I'd been teaching for 10 years. You know, just one, not my main day gig at Westmont College at the time. And, uh, and, you know, and we had a amicable departure, except I made him fire me because I didn't want him to tell the class I was supposed to teach in three weeks that I was going to, uh, that I had decided not to teach. He said, no, don't worry. He's a friend of mine, the guy, the provost at the time. He said, yeah, I'll tell him that. Well, four years after that, I get a call from, um, uh, from somebody who was supposed to take that course. And they said, I, they were so upset. I got fired that they wanted to give me, and they eventually gave me $70,000 in grant money. Oh. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, you know, just, tell the yeah. truth and oh and by the way i didn't know what he was going to do with it so when i got a call from the provost and remember at 2007 2008 he goes i just saw this on youtube oh wow yeah and i said what's youtube <laughs> <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i didn't know what it was at that that's time <laughs> wow. yeah that's wow no i think yeah I, I i admire that um so kind of i guess just in speaking of terms of like telling the truth uh tramper so th- it's going right into um maybe some of the challenges with the old testament i mean you've written books on this mm. and um we could kind of go in different directions here you know there's a lot of different but you know, people, modern readers um, have things that they, many modern readers have things they find challenging about the Old Mm. Testament. Things like Mm. the way it talks about gender, violence, um, slavery. Uh, There's parts of the Pentateuch that seem Mm. um, very, you know, there's a way that men are treated, a way that women are treated, it seems misogynistic. Mm. Mm. And I wondered how you would kind of come at those concerns. You can go on, obviously there's a lot of of room to do things you can talk about there, but how do you kind of think about those um, issues? Yeah, um, and, and and there are things uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are disturbing to me too. Uh, and I I kind of say to myself, well, if I'm not disturbed by anything in there, I'm probably just reading it to <laughs> to conform to my mm-hmm. own expectations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but on the other hand, I also um, I I would differentiate in that list that you gave me that good list um say patriarchy polygamy slavery on the one hand and um and violence so let me speak to the first Mm -hmm. and and also give uh proper due respect for to william webb among others who i think he didn't invent the redemptive ethical trajectory, but uh, but he he rightly points out that you can't just uh, cite a text from, say, the case law and automatically assume that that is God's ideal yeah. ethic, yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Um, 
So, but rather, and he and others point to Matthew 19 and Jesus's comments about divorce, you know, Moses, uh, where, by the way, he's not loosening up the law. He's actually tightening up the law about divorce, which is interesting. Um, He's saying, no, actually, it's harder to get a divorce. And Moses, he doesn't say Moses was wrong. He doesn't say uh, you misunderstand Moses. What he says is, um, you know, Moses said that because of the hardness of your heart. So basically, God is taking the people where they are and moving them toward that um, creation ideal, you know. And you go back and you look at Genesis 2, and you can't imagine something like, patriarchy or slavery or polygamy. And, uh, and so, and, and I think Webb's right too, that, that, uh, that, that the new Testament itself doesn't arrive at that um, creation ethic and that, that we should work today uh, for the complete abolition of slavery, which was permitted Mm -hmm. during the new Testament time period for gender equality um, for monogamy, which um, I've talked to some New Testament scholars and asked them the question, you know, would a polygamous man be welcome in a Pauline church? Uh, and because my thinking is when the pastorals say that the officers of the church have to be the husband of one wife, it's a way of saying, well, the officers need to reflect the creation ideal. Yeah. Uh, so, but that doesn't mean we should allow polygamy today. We shouldn't allow slavery today yeah. and we shouldn't allow patriarchy today. And a friend of mine, Pete Wayner, um, who's not a theologian, but he's uh, actually a, uh, uh, somebody who writes, he's a very thoughtful Christian who uh, actually has a, uh, had a career in politics. He was in the Reagan Bush um, and he, uh, administrations, and he writes a lot for the Atlantic and New York Times now. But we've talked a lot about this, and um, and he points out that you know you go back to the 19th century and abolitionists were using the redemptive ethical trajectory to argue. So that's why I mean by Webb didn't yeah. invent it, but he certainly did a really good job. Mm. Of, of, a, of convincing a number of us that that's the right way to look at it. But that's not true of every, every uh, thing in the Old Testament. So you have to, um, and, and I, I kind of disagree with Webb's newer book, actually on the topic of divine violence, um, because as, as I've read the Bible, I don't see the same kind of movement that you do with um it's it there's a movement yeah we're we're in a period of spiritual warfare now uh but i i read revelation and by the way just to promote it my next uh book is a commentary on revelation that's coming out in april uh with kriegel um you know i i think a, a a fair reading of revelation is that when jesus comes again it's going to be a culmination of God's judgment against spiritual and human evil. Um, so it's, um, yeah. So, so those are some yeah. thoughts, Ryan, about those topics. I was just going to say, you know, I think it's interesting as we talk about sort of the challenging issues. I also think that it's, it's valuable to ask questions like, what do you find beautiful in the old Testament? Mm. I think that mm. there's, there's this way in which it's both the thing that challenges us and also a thing of beauty. So, oh, yeah, absolutely, Beth. Um, and and in a sense, where does one start? I mean, I, I think, um, uh, you know, the Psalms are a beautiful expression of prayers that Calvin called a mirror of our soul as uh, and, and presents us with these beautiful uh, verbal pictures of who God is, um, powerful pictures. I think, um, I think, the wisdom literature, and I still, contrary to some of my colleagues, talk about wisdom literature as as a genre. Um, but the wisdom literature presents, you know, 
vast resources for living life well and pointing us toward the fear of God. Um, I marvel at the at the history. I mean, I I do the you know thinking about God creating everything. Um, you know the fact that He keeps relentlessly pursuing His sinful people in order to, uh, you know, reconcile. You know, uh, reconcile with them something that, and then finally, you know, I and um, I'm just finishing today writing my responses to colleagues, and one of those five views. This one's on Christ in the Old Testament, but. Uh, I marveled when looking at the Old Testament through the prism of the resurrection, how, as Jesus said, all of scripture anticipates him. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a lot there, Beth. Um, and that's why I think, um, people who want to, to use now, a common expression, thanks to Andy Stanley, who want to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, uh, even if he didn't mean quite what people think he thinks he meant, uh, still a bad way of talking about the Old Testament. And those who want to read the Old Testament too quickly from a New Testament perspective miss a lot of richness in mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Yeah, I sometimes describe it when I'm talking to students about I, how I think it's this deep well that you can keep swimming deeper and deeper mm-hmm. and, and never see the bottom. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, people ask me, you know, I've been studying the, the Old Testament for probably 40 years uh, as a kind of professional focus. And they say, don't you get tired of it? I go, I learn something new every day. Yeah. I mean, it, that's that bottomless uh, well of richness that you're talking about, Beth. Mm-hmm. All right, so these are the fun, uh, fast-paced questions. If you won an all-inclusive vacation to anywhere in the world, where would you go? Uh, well, uh, I'd go to uh, Nevis in the Caribbean. <laughs> and actually, I am going to Nevis in the Caribbean in February with my wife. So, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Is it your first time going? Yeah, first time going to this particular island. And, you know, because we moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. When we lived in Santa Barbara, if you do go to an island, Hawaii was easier to get to. Here you could be in Nevis in three to four hours. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) I'm inspired to go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What is one book in biblical studies that you think everybody should read? Um, That's not mine. No, no, no. Uh, in biblical studies, well, you know, there are a lot. I, I, I think that um, I, I, I would say authors too, whose perspective I would encourage people to read, which would include friends like John Walton and uh, and John Golden Gay and. Uh, um, yeah, so I don't know that there's one book that would do it, but, um, and this is not to say I totally agree with either of those two Johns, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just that you learn, learn a lot from them. Well, I married a John, so I just, oh yeah, yeah, there you go. So I <laughs> yeah, <understand>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Trump, Trump for going off this, maybe this is like, that's, I think a hard question for scholars to answer, but, um, we, uh, uh, Beth and I talked about this question. This is the desert island question. If you had to, um, if you had to just pick one scholar, if you were stranded on a book with their books, do you have someone that you would choose? Just one particular <laughs> scholar? Well, again, not because I agree with him. Matter of fact, I wrote a whole book, kind of lovingly pushing back on him. But I'd probably take somebody like Pete Enns, who's been my longtime friend, mm-hmm. because he'd be a lot of fun to talk to and. Uh, <laughs> Especially if we could uh, uh, make margaritas on this island. (laughs) (laughs) 
That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could, uh, yeah, just be a fly on the wall or, yeah. Yeah. Making the margaritas. Well, I mentioned that because yeah. usually at SBL, we, uh, Doug Green, Pete Enns, and I get together and, and debrief. Um, but Pete's not coming down, but he's going to come down to DC in a couple of weeks and nice. we'll hang out for a day. <laughs> he was my, first of all, he was one of my, students and then i then i hired him at westminster and then we've done a lot of projects together but you know uh, again i want to be clear that uh there are things that i disagree with them about so i i i wrote this book at baker's urging called confronting old testament controversies where mm-hmm. as i say i lovingly push back on some of his ideas um particularly on history and divine violence, but, um, but even a little bit on the, we're both evolutionary creationists, Mm -hmm. but uh, I, I I think he may take his position a little, he does take his position too far (laughs) because he, (laughs) he, at least he he said, um, I don't know whether he's changed his mind, but that the fall is in the historical event. And I don't think that, I think that's not something you can learn from science, but it's something that we learn from scripture. Hmm. That's wow. So um, this was a question uh, both Beth and I really wanted to ask you, but what's the best compliment you've ever gotten, Trumper? Oh, wow. Uh, That's a good question. Um, It's funny because the first thing that popped into my mind, which isn't the best compliment I ever got was after I did a seminar where there was a charismatic audience uh, A woman came up to me and I, I was doing it with Dan Allender, the psychologist. And the woman came up to me and goes, I have a word of the Lord for you. Can I share it? And I said, sure. And she goes, I just want you to know that, that you're a good speaker, but that other guy. <laughs> so of course, first of all, Dan Allender is one of the most brilliant speakers you'd ever yeah. want to hear. Uh, but I made sure to tell Dan that I thought this word of the Lord was true, <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but yeah, no, I probably, uh, you know, uh, the compliments I've received over the years from my wife are the most important. Yeah. Well, yeah, that I'm, that's that's like well, the one you want to get them from. So this is similar, I guess, to the desert island question we we're asking before. But if you had to pick a historical figure, not someone contemporary, um, Trepper, that you would, um, I guess, you could get margaritas with them as well, uh, <laughs> like or, or something. I don't know, whatever they're drinking at that time. Um, what would who would that person be? I almost want to say Kohelet in the book of Ecclesiastes, except I don't think he's a historical figure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, um, I don't know. There are a lot of people in the Old Testament I'd love to sit down with and mm. talk to, whether it's David or Moses or yeah. uh, somebody like that. So uh, they count for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay. The last of our um, sort of fun questions. I think the other ones are fun too, but um, the ones that are intended to be fun. Um, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would that meal be? It would uh, it would be uh, grilled salmon on a cedar board. Yeah. I love, mm. I love that. What um, would you have on the side? Uh, sweet, but baked sweet potato and uh, broccoli probably, or some green uh yeah no that's and i usually have that once a week we have that about once a week that is a very healthy answer trimper yeah i know you know (laughs) you know uh i'm at the age where i do enjoy a really good steak uh but uh can't do that too often anymore (laughs) (laughs) so not every day yeah not every day (laughs) so not every day that's great All right, so we're going to move to some questions on uh, the Old Testament and the church now. That's uh, our next kind of segment. Okay. Yeah, and I I can uh, start that. Um, So 
Um, Tremor, uh, you've you've mentioned already just your love of wisdom literature, if if that is a category. But um, I so just thinking about that biblical category of wisdom, I wondered if you could just talk about what wisdom is, how uh, biblically speaking, and what a wise person looks like according mm. to the Bible, and then how someone can gain the wisdom. That wisdom. Mm. It's kind of a multi part question here. And, and yeah. what are the benefits of of having mm. uh, being a wise person? Right. Right. But that's a great question. When I describe uh, biblical wisdom, um, and I usually start with the book of Proverbs, um, I I describe it as having three different, uh, not levels, but uh, there are three different dimensions to wisdom, okay? There's, first of all, one that most people know, the practical level, the sort of emotional intelligence, social skills, how to navigate life well, how to say the right thing at the right time, how to, um, you know, do the right thing at the right time. And and I'll come back to this issue of timing because that's important to the question, how do we acquire it? Um, But if you stop there, um, you really don't understand biblical wisdom. You need to go to the ethical dimension next, you know, mm-hmm. that, that to be wise is to also be righteous, you know, mm-hmm. and a, a wise person's a good person. So uh, wisdom brings benefits according to Proverbs, but if you get those benefits by harming others in the process, you're not wise, you're, you're a fool. Mm-hmm. But the most fundamental and foundational thing is um, that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So mm-hmm. there's the theological dimension to wisdom, which is not an add-on. It's <laughs> none yeah. of these are add-ons. They're all. Uh, it's just a way of describing uh, what wisdom is. But to fear the Lord, which is you know to have. Uh, fear, you know, I think uh, the wisdom literature and, of course, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs all have the fear of the Lord as a punchline, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why it's fear of the Lord, not love of the Lord, is it, it's not saying you don't love the Lord, but fear, uh, and it's not the kind of fear that makes you run away. It's the kind of fear that makes you uh, pay attention and obey. Uh, and it is a fundamental recognition that God is so much greater than you are. Um, and it's not an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept, and it's more than simply respect, as Paul teaches us when he says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. New Testament also puts an emphasis on the fear of the Lord. And um, and so... Um, so that's now how do you acquire this wisdom is an interesting question because uh, wisdom is more than just knowing some proverbs. Say. <laughs> uh, wisdom, as I just, just knowing proverbs won't get you very far often because you have proverbs like Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, answer a fool according to his folly, follow immediately by don't answer a fool according to his folly, or those might be reversed. Uh, so how do you know whether to answer a fool or not answer a fool? Well, you have to learn how to read people. You have to learn how to read situations. Um, so the truly wise person is somebody who's a student, not only of scripture, but is also a student of life and of themselves and Mm -hmm. others. Um, and, and how do you gain that kind of wisdom? Well, one way, and Proverbs puts a big emphasis on this, is learning from our mistakes, right? Uh, so you answer a fool, and it leads to a big problem. You should reflect on that. Uh, make you, know, you should be a reflective, observant person, mm. and then learn how to read the cues as to whether it's helpful or not to answer yeah. a fool. So... That's why, by the way, the default in the Bible is that older people are wiser than younger people because older people have failed more. (laughs) And, and, but, but the problem is it's a default, but it's not always true because 
sometimes people grow old and they don't learn from their mistakes. They don't reflect on their life. And so they remain fools. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something I, I never thought about there, but there's something kind of hopeful about wisdom, like the, the process of gaining wisdom. Like, I mean, you need the attentiveness to learn, but there's even making mistakes. It doesn't necessarily disqualify you from becoming wise. I, I think a- absolutely. And there's something else about wisdom that a lot of people um, may not appreciate. And that is, um, well, two aspects of this. One is we can grow in wisdom. Wisdom is it's not a strict binary. You're either wise or you're a fool. Um, mm-hmm. But you can grow in wisdom. And as a matter of fact, one of the ways I read Job is he's wise at the beginning. He's even wiser at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he fears God at the beginning, but through the crucible of his suffering and his interaction with God at the end, uh, he grows in maturity and wisdom. And you can lose it. I mean, Solomon's the prime example of that. I usually contrast that with, you know, an intellectual measure like a PhD. I mean, mm. I say, uh, you know, I got a PhD in 1983. I'm Dr. Longman. If tonight, God forbid, I have a stroke and I can't put two words together, I'm still Dr. Longman. But wisdom is a category that you can lose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Solomon loses it because of life choices he makes, uh, marrying foreign women and then having them persuade him to build altars to foreign gods and goddesses. Wow. Can I... I don't want to stop us too long here, but could you talk about the benefits of wisdom? Like, you know, why is it desirable yeah. to be wise? Yeah, that's that's a good question because I do think um, living with wisdom um, does bring benefits. Okay, uh, I mean, I think that if, um, but you see, the reason why you have to be careful is because you don't want to turn that statement into something like the prosperity gospel. Mm, Um, You know, so, I mean, it's, it's not a guarantee Mm. the way I think of, say, let's take a a well-known proverb, you know, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they grow old, they won't depart from it. Uh, Won't get into all the debates as to whether that's the best translation or, anything. I, I, I think it is. Um, but, um, but first of all, you can't treat that as a promise. The Proverbs aren't promises. What they're doing is they're saying, this is the best route to a desired conclusion, all other things being equal. Hmm. It's no hmm. promise that, you know, if you raise up a child in the best way that you can, that they will be, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll always come back to the Lord or something, but, but it's much more likely that they will than if you don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Sometimes I've thought, do you think this would be a fair way of summarizing, but the Proverbs are probabilistic maybe would be a way to think about it. We're thinking in terms of probabilities and odds even. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's much more probable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, It, but it's not, they're not promises. Um, the, that's not what a proverb does. Uh, it, it, Bruce Walke wrote a really uh, good article years ago in Bibliotheca Sacra, where the title simply something like, Proverbs don't make promises. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, so just kind of then um, thinking even just of the Old Testament as a whole, um, I'm wondering how you think people can, I've noticed one thing I've really appreciated about you, Tremper, is just your, and you've talked about it at the beginning, your, your passion for average Christian people, just to, to read the Old Testament, to understand the Old Testament, to grow in their faith through it. And, but how can people do that well? Like, what would you, where would you get them started in that? Because I think a lot of people, they, they open up, you know, the book of Leviticus mm-hmm. and they, they immediately, you know, I, I have a friend that likes to say that every 
Leviticus is like the the ender of ninety percent of bi- you know read through the Bible a year plans. You know, like we're doing everyone's doing great, and then it's just Leviticus, and then it's over. So, how can people become better readers of the Old Testament? And um, what kind of virtues, in particular, do you think that people need to read the Old Testament? Well, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> that's a great question. I think that one of the first things I would say is get a readable translation. Um, you know, um, don't try to s- slog through the King James version, for instance, um, get a translation that is in, um, very accessible, readable English, but is still faithful to the Hebrew text. And and that might be the NIV. It might be the New Living Translation, which I'll confess I was one of the senior translators of. Um, uh, and there are other good ones out there too. The Common Bible. Um, the ESV is good too, but it is a little, a little stilted in my opinion. And, um, uh, but it has great virtues for, other types of study as well. The message, which I was also a consultant to, um, I really value as a second translation, but it might be a little bit too readable (laughs) Um, (laughs) as a first translation. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is, um, you know, we're distanced from the Old Testament. Recognize that it is hard to see the relevance of it. and, And maybe depending on where you are in your reading, you might want to get something that will help you orient you to reading it. And so I don't get, I don't get royalties for this, but I did a, I did a series of uh, 4,000 word little pamphlets for the, our daily bread people, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to read the Torah, how to read the historical books, how to read wisdom uh, and uh, how to read poetical books. I forget how many I did. Uh, I don't think they're all out yet. Mark Strauss did equivalent ones for the New Testament. Then we collaborated on the one on how to read apocalyptic literature, how to read apocalyptic, which means basically Daniel and Revelation. And a little help like that might might also help one see, well, why is there so much about sacrifices or ritual purity in the book of Leviticus? And what is, how does that help me understand the new Testament? Mm. All that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, um, so, so, and the other thing is I, you know, I was, uh, I'm teaching a college class now um, for, uh, you know, traditional, 18 to 21 year olds. And a lot of them haven't read through the old Testament, even though it's a Christian liberal arts college, Westmont college. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they're supposed to read through the whole Bible, including first and second Chronicles, which is where we are now. And I said, look, um, let me tell you why the genealogies are important and what it's trying to contribute to this, but, you know, don't feel like you have to read it slowly, at least your first time through. (laughs) Uh, hmm. There's a lot of real rich stuff there, but you're not going to get it the first time through. Um, so, so yeah, um, th- those are some advice I would give. Study hmm. by a good study Bible is often helpful as well. Um, that's why we biblical scholars, you you included, uh, do this kind of thing to give resources to people to yeah. help them read it and see the relevance of it. Oh, and virtues, virtues. Well, one of them must be persistence, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I had thought about that. Yeah. No, one of them is, is when you run into true. what you yeah. think is a boring part, just don't stop reading it. Right. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> or, um, and, and another one, I, I mean, the most important virtue, no matter what you're reading in the Bible is to recognize that it's, uh, written by human beings, but it's ultimately God's word. And so mm-hmm. read it to listen and to hear God's voice. Read it prayerfully. Mm-hmm. Put yourself in a position, uh, uh, know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through it. And so ask for the Holy Spirit to help you 
uh, read it. That's great, Trimper. Um, I I would love to hear how studying the Old Testament has helped you grow in your faith, and also how you think Christians can grow in their faith through the Old Testament. Well, I I think that um, that the Old Testament has helped me grow in my faith as I come to understand God or come to know God better uh, through seeing how He acts in history uh, again highlighting the fact that uh, it just amazes me that God keeps so relentlessly pursuing his sinful human creatures to, um, to, you know, so that they will be redeemed and reconciled in a relationship with him. And of course this culminates in Christ. Um, yeah. And I think I, I also grow in my faith as, and, and here, you know, I'm not, saying that there aren't a lot of different voices in scripture, but there is this sort of organic coherence to the message of, of the Bible that also um, makes me grow in my faith and, and also amazes me and draws me back to scripture. That's wonderful. So is is there one question you wish we'd asked and then how you would have, how would you have answered a question that we, uh, if you have a question, you're like, Oh, I wish they asked that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. I, 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 um, I, I didn't give enough thought to that one. I thought all your questions were excellent questions and, uh, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm except maybe what's your next project? <laughs> Just, <laughs> that's great. But I think I already, I think I, well, I think I already, I dropped that. Uh, now that I finished the revelation commentary, I am um, working on this trilogy mm-hmm. uh, on literary theory and the old Testament. That's what I'm presently focused on. And that's getting me to return to a subject. I, really focused in on in the 1980s when mm-hmm. I wrote Literary Approaches to Biblical Interpretation. And I co-authored, uh, uh, you know, a complete guide to uh, to the Old Testament as literature with, uh, with uh, Leland Riken, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of fun to get back to that. And then I'm doing the history uh, and I wrote a history with Phil Long and, uh, and Ian Proven, and then do the theology. But then also, I'm excited that Sandy Richter, Nancy Erickson, and I have been asked to do the um, Old Testament equivalent to Tom Wright and Mike Bird's new uh, New Testament introduction. So uh, we're, we're working hard on that. The trilogy, what uh, publisher is that going to be coming out, out with? Uh, Baker. Baker. Yeah. And then the introduction is Zondervan. That's so great. Trimper, this has been such a pleasure. I'm appreciative that you joined us today and we are just really, really happy to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Beth and Ryan. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgeintheology.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would share the show on your social media or in person with a friend, a church member, a teacher, or a colleague. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.